one of the saddest program in Navi. And my opinion is the description of what happened right before the Chorban. There are many graphic psukim about what happened during the Chorban, after the Chorban, many midrashim. What took place within the hours and days before the Chorban is heart-wrenching because it's still a time where possibly things can be turned around. I only know that because Yermio told that to Tzitkiyo HaMelech. It was already at a time when the enemy had surrounded Yushalayim. They were about to invade. And the Pasuk, in Yermio Lamed Ches, the parak at the beginning talks about the fact that Yermio Anavi was in jail in some sort of quicksand, he was actually uh, in danger of sinking. And the Melech, who was Be'etzem, a true tzaddik, gave orders to one of the Avodim, who was a Talmud of, of the Navi, Baruch, later to be the Rebbe of Ezra. Yitzhava Melech Hazeved, Melech Hakushi, Lemar Kach Be'yotcha, Mizeh Anashim, take 30 men. That's how much it's going to take to bring him out of the bar. And quickly get him out. Pasik describes how they lifted him out. They got him out just in the nick of time. And they didn't free him. They put him in the Chatzara Matara, which was a jail above ground. Short while later, the Melech Tzitkio sends Yermio a very secret message, please come see me, make sure nobody knows about it. I want to ask you something, please tell me the truth. It's a godless to have somebody who wants to hear the truth. So we'll soon see it's a bigger godless to listen to the truth, and that's going to prove quite difficult. What good is it if I'm brave enough to tell you the truth? You're going to kill me for what I say. And if I give you advice, you're not going to listen anyway. So the Melech makes a shvua, Chai Hashem, Asher Asalonu Asanefesh Azois, Im Amisecha. I swear I'm not going to kill you. Notice how he didn't swear that he's going to listen either, because he wasn't quite sure that he will. He didn't want to lie. I'm not going to hand you over to those people who are trying to kill you until I just saved you. Okay, so he has Rishus to speak without any punishment. This is the Dvar Hashem. How many people are Zeichat to hear it straight? From the Navi Adar. They're surrounded right now. They're about to invade. If you surrender, and it's ironic that in Bayashani, that the same same and the same problem. The Chachamim said, give in. We're not Zecha to take on the Romans. Give in and they'll let the Besamikdash stand. That was the second time in history that conversation took place. They didn't listen then either. But he tries. He tells him, Surrender, you will live. And the city will not be burnt to the ground. You will live and your family will survive. 
And if you do not surrender, the city will be given over to Nebuchadnezzar. And you're not going to escape either. Tzitkio had a very elaborate escape plan which couldn't fail until it did. Yeah, underground passage for miles. He'd come out in the middle of nowhere. They'll never be able to track this. And of course, we know that would have worked. But Derechatevan, Hashem, as he's running through, sent a deer that the Roman, that the uh, that the uh, troops should start shooting at, and they give chase, and they kept missing and missing and missing. They're shooting at point blank range. And they kept missing and missing, and they chase and they chase, and they finally catch up to the deer exactly at the exit to his tunnel, and they catch him. The odds of that happening are 100 million to one. And Tzitkio, no doubt, thought he understood that maybe the city's going to fall, but I could still escape. And he's not doing this for selfish reasons. He's a tzaddik, he cares for the people, and he wants to survive as the Melech Yisrael. The Navi tells him, the Devar Hashem, that he's not going to escape. After he tells him, the Devar Hashem, I'd like to listen, but I am terrified of those Jews who already surrendered and already switched sides. When I get there, they're going to torture me and humiliate me. He's not talking about the Goyim, he's talking about the Yidin. They're going to give them over and they're my enemies. Mm-hmm. It's not going to happen. You have nothing to worry about. He begs, please listen. Dvar Hashem says you will be spared. His last plea is the last time he's going to see Tzikiyahu HaMelech. And this is the last chance to avert the Chorban. Tzikiyahu thinks for a moment and makes the fateful decision I promised I won't kill you. I'm not going to kill you if you don't tell anybody the contents of this conversation. If anybody finds out about this, you're in big trouble. And Yermio had no choice. and There's nobody else to talk to anyway. Tzitkiyo was the only chance. And he sent him back to jail. And the day Nebuchadnezzar came in, Yermio and Novi was still in jail, and Tzitkiyo will be captured and blinded. Just so we understand who we're talking about, Gemara Sanhedrin says, Shem wanted to destroy the world. The generation of Tzitkiyo was so bad. And Hashem looked at Tzitkio and the tzaddik that he was. And Hashem said, for him it's Kedai, I'm not going to destroy the world. That's the level of Tzitkus we're talking about here. We're not here to second-guess Tzitkio because the Navi writes it as it is. He made the wrong decision. We're not here to heap scorn, chas or to say we would have done any better. We're here to learn what we can from his mistakes and from the mistakes of Tishabov and how to be Masakin. The struggle over here of Tzitkiyo on his Madrega is a struggle that we all face. As a matter of fact, uh, Chazal have a second comment in the same daf. The Pusuk criticizes Tzitkiyo like he was a Rosh of a Yasara Bein Hashem. And the same Gemara in Kuv Gimel says, Yasara, he was at Tzadik Yasad Eilam. Now here Tzitkiyo is telling the Navi, I'm afraid of them, they're going to kill me, his advisors were all rotten, and there are plenty of people out to get him. I'm sorry, I apologize, it's out of my hands. I'm only one person. And Yermiyah Navi was telling him, in essence, a lesson that we often miss. And if we would each as individuals learn this lesson, it would be a different world. The gula would be here. And that lesson is, don't underestimate what one person can do and who one person 
can influence. It might be a shining example where one person follows. It might be a group of people. It might be a minion. That's all Abba Avinu is looking for in Sadaim. A minion, minion of people you could be much beyond. And we often have the same attitude. You say Tzitkiyo was up against a lot worse, but he was a lot greater. So Zulu Mazu. The people we deal with today, you know what they say, they don't make good Rasham like they used to. So we don't have good Sadiqim like they used to either, so we're on an even playing field. Aren't that many people we know that are so lahachis, eish lahava. You bump into them once in a while, once you break through that outer core, it's just a person dying to connect. And the message of Yirmiyah Navi, the message of Akash Baruchu, was it's a few days before the Chorban. You could turn the whole thing around by being Mavral Midasecha and going through the bush of surrendering. Key number one to Agula doing something which hurts your pride. And then try to work on some of your ministers, some of the people, get somebody on your side, and you'll see we'll make a revolution. What an incredible yesaid that we, we don't utilize enough. There's one very famous Sadekis in history who utilized this so well that the reason why, why we're going to be zeichet to Agula is because of what she did under similar circumstances. You all know who I'm referring to? Who am I referring to? Anybody? Rachel. The women got it right because they're... Medrash Eicha says, and one of our kinnas spoke about the beginning of the story today, the kinnah talks about Yermiel and Avi going to Marasamach Pela and waking the Ovis Akadashim up. So Ovis is a destruction, there's a Chorban, Klaeso is going into Gullis, you have to storm the gates of tefillah. You've got to storm Shamayim where you are. And you've got to beg, almost demand that a Baruch Hu promise to bring back Klai Yisrael. Abba Avinu did and had his tainas of schusim. And Yitzchak Avinu did and Yaakov Avinu did. And I'm sure all of it helped. But there was no promise elicited until Rachel Imenu came in and said, I'm only a boss of a dumb, and it's natural that I be jealous. And I spent my whole life looking forward to marrying the Tzadik Yaakovinu and coming into Klai Yisrael. And the day of the chuppah, right before we walked down, my father came over to me and told me to sit down, your sister's going instead. And I'm a boss of a dumb. Kinnah is a natural midah, and I want to add to the Medrash, if I may, it's not just Kina. If she would have called me with a Shaila, I would have said, well, uh, what are the circumstances? She would say, that's why you have to a lot of, ask a lot of questions about these interpersonal Shailas because you could be missing a lot of information, especially when we get a cold call, which happens. So let's assume that I was somewhere else and I got a call and um, said my father just asked me to switch I said, well, um, do you think your chassan's going to mind? <laughs> so the answer would be, going to mind, he knows my father better than I do. When we spoke about it, he told me that your father's a Russian, a charlatan, and a ganov, and I'm chashay, she's going to try to switch with your sister. So we're making simonims. In case this happens, you know what to do. If I were listening to this, Shaila, I said, Chassan spoke to you about this already and you made a deal so it shouldn't happen? Yeah. And now you want to let it happen? How can I embarrass my sister? I'm going to phrase this kasha so well that I, I don't even have a shot why this was mutter, but it obviously was because we're living off of these chusim. But you want a person who had a right to be merahetah. This is not jealousy. I'm not jealous of her. I don't have a jealous bone in my body. But we have a deal. How's this going to look? He's going to have tainas on me. It's a chesha mishpashayla. This is not nothing to do with jealousy. that I'm not sure how to answer it. I'll leave it to Hilchasa and there's farm written on this. Like, how did she have a right to almost ba'avol Yaakov? His answer is, we get a new insight in the godless Yaakov. She understood that after all the deals and the entire setup and all the passwords and all the bavarning that this might happen, Yaakov doesn't want to embarrass her either which speaks volume of Yaakov Avinu as well. It's just, it's unbelievable. 
But to be meirehetter, I don't even want to, can't even use that word, to, to just deal with it as we would deal with it. We'd say, look, we feel very bad. Who wants to embarrass their sister? But the din is a din, and life goes on, and I made a promise, and that's it. I'm trying to be Magdal the Nisayan over here of what she passed. We don't understand. We can't be Masik and say, yeah, she gave it to a sister. What would a sister do? What would a brother do for a brother? And says, this was against all Seichel Hayasher. This is against possibly a serious halachic shaila. And deep down, she knew that the real psak is that she should let her sister go. And all those things whispering in her ear, you had a deal and you have simonim. So she told the Yetzirah, yeah, I had simonim. I better give over the simonim also. She told the sister, wait a second before you walk down. So now, Rachel who comes to HaKosh Baruch Hu, and she says in Anivus, I'm only a boss of a dumb, and that wasn't a normal Nisoyen. And I passed. You're HaKosh Baruch Hu, and Klai did Avodazar, and you're sending him to Chuslaritz. We know Hashem is not jealous of anything, because Hashem is not jealous. But Kaviyach on the it's presented as Hashem is a Kel Kane, Hashem is jealous. We don't want any split allegiances, and Klai did just that. Rachel Imenu asks, pleads, almost demands, if I cannot follow my jealousy, I ask you to put it aside. And if there's already a Chorban, at least promise to bring them back. And the Medrash ends, that's why the Schus is focused on Rocham Mavakal Banel, that that's the Schus that pushed it through. So now, let's step back and think, what can one person do? Well, I think this Medrash is telling us what one person can do. And I think Tzitkiyo, although we would not have done any better, if he would understand perhaps his own godless, he would understand when he's saying to Yirmiya, I can't go, they can make fun of me, they ridicule me. What he's really saying is, I don't think I have anybody on my side, and I don't think I'm going to succeed in convincing anybody of my position. And if I just surrender, they're going to call me a coward. And therefore, he couldn't bring himself to do it. You've heard me from this tender in prior years speak about the dangers and the evils of uh, Internet. I'm not going to speak about it now. It's just a disclaimer of what I'm about to read. You've heard me speak about it. I've had CDs given out. I threatened to drop it from a helicopter. We ended up doing that. And Baruch Hashem, um, I think El Chayidin is starting to get the message about what the dangers are. So if the word www comes up in this next article this is not a heter or a push to go look this up and if you do it's with your filter and with your accountability program even if I'm not Yecharusa whoever it is but what I'm going to read to you is a source of godless of course it was written by a yid who's not yet from but if he keeps talking like this he's going to figure it out He's a very famous individual. His name is Dan Ariely. He's an Israeli. He speaks all over the world. He's an author of uh, many, many books. Again, there's no mitzvah to look these things up afterwards. Just take my word for it. The part you need from the entire book is what I'm going to share with you. So uh, I saved you $10. He has one of his famous books. is called uh, Predictably Irrational. He's supposed to be a big guru on uh, humanity, human emotions, human reactions. And a lot of his stuff is very on the mark. As a Yiddish cup, a Yiddish neshama that's not there yet, who has been through a lot in life. He, his introduction to his book is already a Musa Shmuz. He says uh, he was uh, injured in, a, in an army accident. Uh, most of his body was uh, burnt, and he uh, couldn't function for years. He sat in the hospital, and he had time to think and think and think and think. And he started putting down thoughts on, he started noticing how strange humans are as he observed them from a distance. Strange is the word he uses, but that's not going to be our conclusion because that's not the Das Terra. With that introduction, one day while browsing the World Wide Web, obviously for work, not just wasting time, okay, a little shaker in every article, I stumbled on the following ad on the website of a magazine called The Economist. A well-known magazine. And the front page, of course, everybody's always advertising. 
The front page says, welcome to the Economist Subscription Center. Pick the type of subscription you want to buy. Now listen carefully. You have three choices. Choice number one, Economist.com subscription, U.S. dollars, $59. One year subscription, online, with a filter and an accountability program. doesn't say that here. He should. Option, and then only if you're in business and you need the magazine. $59, okay. Don't know if it's a good price or not, either does he. Option number two, print, subscription, $125. That means you can get the physical magazine. Are you ready for this? Option number three, print and web subscription, $125. So this guy, this author is a pretty smart guy. So he looks at it, looks at it again, looks at it a third time. He says, okay, what are they up to? We all know there's no free lunch in life. And um, obviously there has to be a trick somewhere. Again, $59 for the online, $125 for the print, and $125 for the online and the print. You have to be on the ball to notice these things. He continues, I suspect that the clever people of the Economist London office were actually manipulating me. I'm pretty certain they wanted me to skip the internet-only option, which they assumed would be my choice since I was reading the advertisement on the web. And to jump to the more expensive option, the internet and print, which is significantly more expensive, more than double. How can they manipulate me? They obviously knew something important about human behavior, and that is humans rarely choose things in absolute terms. We don't have an internal value meter, or he claims, that tells us how much things are worth. Rather, we focus on the relative advantage of one thing over another and estimate value accordingly. This is godless. Listen, listen carefully. This is a big musser. It's just that he missed, uh, he's completely wrong on the issue, but he's right about the economist. In the case of the economist, I might not have known whether the internet-only subscription was 59 was a better deal than the print-only option of 125. So I don't know. I never had the magazine. He doesn't know. But I certainly knew that the print and internet option for 125 was better than the print-only option of 125. No, so far you're following? In fact, you can reasonably deduce that in the combination package, the internet subscription is actually free. Valkane Ma. So he goes on, I'll be Makatsar, to say that the brilliance in this advertising is understanding that many people in life don't really know what they want in any area, Gashmias or Ruchnias. And if you give them a frame of reference and then for advertising you put in a decoy, then they won't know whether the print is a better deal or the online is a better deal. But when you show them something, both combined it's the same price, they will grab that 99 of 100 times because they think they're getting a deal. So in the frame of reference, they're able to make a choice. The Pelladica thing is he tried this on a group of 100 students in MIT. And 84 chose the package for $125. Just be careful who your next engineer is. That means that it's almost irrelevant whether they wanted to buy it or not. It was such a good deal, they couldn't resist. Nobody chose the middle option, not surprisingly. A few of them, probably the smart ones, chose the first option, even though the 125 was a better deal. He continues, Most people don't know what they want unless they see it in context. We don't know what kind of racing bike we want until we see a champ in the Tour de France that doesn't impress me, ratcheting the gears in a particular model. The bikers here might appreciate that. We don't even know what we want to do with our lives until we find a relative or friend who's doing just what we think we should be doing. That's called jealousy. Everything is relative, and that's the point, like an airplane pilot landing in the dark, 
We want runway lights on either side of us guiding us to the place where we could touch down our wheels. What does this have to do with our discussion? Let me read again his key line, which is the antithesis. It's very true, but the antithesis of Torah values and of Yiddishkeit in terms of Das Torah and trying to understand what Agar Baruch wants from us. I don't blame him. He wasn't brought up from. And what he's observing, most people, he's 100% right. And his line was, humans rarely choose things in absolute terms because they don't have an internal value meter that tells us how much things are worth. And that's true by most things in Gashmias. The godless of being a Yid and the godless of being from is that from the moment we wake up, before we even put our feet on the ground, to the time we're falling asleep, hitting the pillow, we have complete and absolute direction. Ben Adam Lamakam, and surprise to many people, Ben Adam Lachaveru as well. What he's describing is the world at large, that people really don't have an opinion, and they're just swayed by whatever the advertising is, whatever everybody else is doing, and wherever the crowd's going. And we see that all the time. We see that in the office. We see that sometimes among our friends, and we should see it in ourselves. The main job in life in our Avodis Hashem is to rise above this problem and understand that everything in life has absolute terms. He's claiming nothing does because he's not from yet. We know that everything has absolute terms. And everything in life, everything you're doing, every position you're in, is either mutter, osser, chayev, potter. There's a category. So somebody once asked me, I mentioned this in a shir, he said, what if I'm just sitting on the train, minding my own business, and going to work? No avera, no mitzvah. I said, what'd you say? He said, no avera, no mitzvah. I said, what do you call Bithel Torah? So he said, I'm not talking about that. I, I, I learned already three hours in the morning, Kyle. I'm just spacing out. Oh, so you're spacing out. So you mean neshmartem lo l'nafshasechem. That's a mitzvah. So he said, well, well, what if I'm not spacing, I'm not learning? I said, what are you doing? I don't know, just relaxing. So if you have to relax, that's neshmartem. He's getting very annoyed. Everything is a mitzvah of era. Uh, I said you can relax. What's the problem? You told me you had morning, say you got up four in the morning, and now you're on the way to work, so you can relax. You clear your head. How about if I talk to the guy next to me? He asked me. I said, great. That's an opportunity for Kiddush Hashem, depending what you say. Now you'll say, well, something's wrong over here. Everything can't be absolute. The answer is, everything is absolute. We just don't always know exactly what to do, which is why... You have a Shulchan Aruch and a Shas and Musa's farm and people to have Shailas to and people to get a Drocha from. And the most difficult part of this theory of being absolute, if I can call it that, is when it comes to interacting with other people and what you want to say sounds too from and doesn't sound popular and you're afraid people are going to ridicule you and make fun of you. And maybe you'll have some perceived harm even though the terror promises you won't be harmed then you won't say anything even if something's being done wrong. I had it with myself just an hour ago. I thought about it for one second and it was too late. What was too late after one second? I was catching mincha, catching is not a nice word, I was going to mincha here in the neighborhood and the Kriya Terra finished. Just the latest example from an hour ago. I'm sure if I'd look carefully, I'd find others. And the fellow who got Shlishi jumped the gun, and right after he finished his brach, he started the Birchas Haftarah. He said, Baruch Hashem And then he said, Oh, wait a second, we didn't do Hagba yet. So he stopped. Now, I'm a Rav, but I was in somebody else's shul. The correct sock is, if he started already, so just finish the bracha. 
We'll talk about the first Pesach, then we'll do we'll, we'll think of something afterwards, but not a Hefzik in the middle of Shem Hashem. It's not that Makkev to do Hagba then. So I was thinking about it for a second, and I'm chayshish in myself, that even though after two seconds I came to my Pesach, it was too late by then, I'm chayshish, the reason I delayed a half a second is, as you know, it's not my shul, I'm going to start going over and making a whole tumult. How many times a day do we do that? Do you ever have occasion to be at the water cooler in your office? I hope this never happened to you, but in case it happened once, and there's a few guys standing around, and as you're walking toward the water cooler or the coffee maker, you hear some lush and her? Has that happened to anybody here? No. You guys must work in very good environments. It's Kavaldic. So you're walking, and you're already a few feet away, and you hear, uh, you hear a name, and you know, oh, no. So it's a matter of instinct. There are three types of people. There are people who walk quicker toward the coffee maker because they don't want to miss anything. Nobody in this room, Baruch Hashem. Then there's the people who at least struggle with it and say, okay, uh, I really need a coffee and um, I'm going to go there and I'm going to change the subject, which is the unluckily proper thing to do if you don't think by telling them what's is going to help, just change the subject. Say, Did you guys hear about what happened last night? They're threatening a blizzard, 17 inches of snow in July. That'll change the subject very quickly. <laughs> and, um, and he has his whole plan. This is what he learned. He learns Shemir Salashan every day. This is what he learned. He's supposed to do. If you can't give direct Moser, he's not going to listen to you. So you just quickly uh, got to be very innovative and you change the subject. And then he gets there and he starts pouring the water. And as he's pouring the water, he's going to say, okay, uh, I got to do it. Uh, blizzard, how many inches? And he's thinking, thinking. He pours the water, he takes a drink, then he starts pouring himself a coffee. And he's listening and listening and listening. And then he walks away with a sigh. Why does this happen? The answer is it happened to Tzitzkiel Amelech. He's going to say, well, we're off the hook. Why shouldn't it happen to us? So I repeat, the Rasharm we're dealing with are not nearly the same Madrega as what Tzitzkiel Tzitzkiel was dealing with dangerous mafiosos. And he was scared for a reason. We like to think that, yeah, there's, uh, here's one of these situations. It's not absolute. Everybody gets very humble. Mani, Mani, Miani, I'm out of Rav, I'm out of Mashkiach, I'm out there Mashkiach. They're just friends of mine. I want to keep my friends. All the excuses in the book don't add up to one thing. If you feel that won't work, and by the way, the most popular misconception, I hear some people all the time, I tell them about they come to me with problems about this guy and that guy and the other guy. I say, why don't you say something? He said, that's why I have a rov. I said, your rov doesn't go to work with you. What do you mean that's why you have a rov? How am I supposed to stop these conversations at the office? So he says, they're not going to listen to me. Isn't there a heta somewhere? Kashem she mitzvah lahagid davar anishma. So too is a mitzvah shalot lahagid davar anishma. I say, yeah, that's when you're kemat 100% convinced it's not going to work. He said, really? I said, well, picture yourself. When you give Musa in any situation, what's the chance of it working? 50% is optimistic. It's probably uh, maybe a bit matzli, maybe 10, 20, 30%. There's a pasik nechumish. What was the pasik talking about? Talking about you only hang around with Sadiqim and you're giving Musr to Lamed Vavniks. Lamed Vavniks don't need Musr. So who are we talking about? We're talking about everyday people. And the Pasuk says, you got to get involved. you got to say something. And if you think it's not going to work, you got to change the subject. you got to do something. And most people are hiding behind the fact that, well, it's probably not going to work, and therefore there's some heter out there. That's not the heter. The heter is where you're pretty sure it's not going to work. Then you're not doing the guy a service. You're making him into a bigger mazer. And even then, when you know he's a mazer, there's no heter. So here we have a situation, and these situations by the coffee maker and the water cooler and the board meetings that come up a hundred times a day. So you'll say, do I have to lose my job? says, I say, yes, they have to lose your job. We'll pass in that shy If it comes up, call from the board meeting first. Ask your boss for the phone. I'm sure he'll be very happy. And uh, you'll discuss it then. But the aside over here, is that there's an absolute chiv to get involved. If you're not the best person, there's somebody right here to do it, and he's better or she's better, so let them do it. But somebody's got to do it. And let's not even talk about giving muscle. Let's talk about just being the shining example that you are. Many people feel that uh, I don't have to be such a tzaddik because I'm not swaying anybody anyway, and no one's looking anyway. And it's not true. It wouldn't have been true, but Sitkiyo HaMelech, and it wasn't true about Rachel Imenu. 
the central yesod in Yiddishkeit and Aravodis Hashem is that, yes, it is absolute. And the reason we're not delivering as much as we should is because we think that we have to see enough people doing it to follow the crowd to make it right. It's very American. It's a very, very populist type view of the world. It's his view, and he's accurately portraying what most people think and do and how they make decisions. It's not for us, and there's no shaykhist to call Yisrael. A shining example of a person who actually accomplished ignoring the naysayers and those that were detractors in every proper decision that had to be made is always a peanut gallery. There are always lights on him. There's always people that think they have something to say even though they have nothing to say. Let me share with you the following Rambam, and before this Rambam, I want to share with you a smock. The Gemara Shabbos brings down, this is very apropos to Tisha B'Av, but very important for the rest of the year. Unfortunately, we only talk about this during the nine days in Tisha B'Av, but it's actually a chiyuv, not stam a chiyuv, but it's in the top four. You're probably wondering, a top four? What chiyuv did I not hear or not think about recently that was in the top four? The Gemara Shabbos on Daf Laman Aleph, says that when we go up to Shemayim, they will have many, many questions that you don't need the Gemara for. got millions of questions. Matter of fact, they're going to start the videotape from 13 years old or 12 and go straight. There'll be parts of the video that all of a sudden will be erased and we'll skip. You'll have a four-minute blank. That's from Yom Kippur. That's called Tshuva. So certain things you can erase. You actually might have some parts of the videotape that are mitzvahs you never did, that somebody else's Lashon Hara on you. You might have mitzvahs you did that are missing, it's your Lashon Hara on somebody else. There are all sorts of revisions. We can cut and paste today with modern technology and videotapes. It's very easy to do. So some of it will look familiar, maybe some of it won't, but it's your videotape. So they're going to have 100 million questions. Every action, every word, every misa. I remember Rabbi the old Apian said that in Kelm they learned how to control every emotion. Every time you looked the other way and turned your head to look at something, there had to be an explanation. I'll get to that soon. Okay, so we have 100 million questions coming. The Gemara says, what are the first four? The Chiddush, the first four, they're all important. The Gemara says, yeah, there are four that are even more important than the rest. Okay, whatever these four are, this has to be a very basic, basic Yesoid in Yiddishkeit. Okay, you ready? Question number one. There's a machlekes in the Gemara and Shabbos, the Gemara Sanhedrin. What was number one and what was number two? Obviously, they're both very choshev if they're number one and number two. There's a beautiful pshat, which I have no time to share with you now, that one and two are really the same. I'll let you think about that after Tishabov. Question number one, the Gemara and Shabbos, is nasata be'amuna. Did you do business honestly? Question number one. Can you imagine? Gantz tayak mitzvahs. Question number one. Did you do business honestly? One doctor told me he's so happy when he heard that Gemara. I said, why are you so happy? He says, I'm not in business. I said, you're in business more than most people I know. It's like a lawyer saying that. Okay, it means, did you deal with everybody? Nothing to do with doctors. Everybody's in business. Who's not in business? No matter what you're doing, you're in business. Okay, did you do business honestly? Question number one. By the way, one fellow asked me if these questions were multiple choice. Uh, Told him, I'm afraid not. You got to answer these questions straight, and you're in Beit Shamila. So this is serious. Question number two: Kavati itam Did you set aside enough time, all the time available for learning? Think of that. That's the remez already. You might have to answer question number one before you know how much time you had available for learning. See, we're at the office and doing business dishonestly was bitul teira lemarfreya. So that's the short version. But so Shaila, what number one? Not two, but number one is honesty. Number two, learning, or vice versa. Number three: Asakta bepruvu. Did you attempt? To raise a family, sometimes it's not biyatcha. Did you try? Okay, so far, so good, no? You would figure for the top three, building Klayisrael, learning, making a Kiddush Hashem. Question number four, this made it into the top four. It's a piece of the Yeshua. Some people say, what's that? It's a piece of the Yeshua? That's like an Iker and a Muna? 
So if you have a sitter and you have the short version of the Ramam's Yud Gimel Karm after davening, and you looked at it, you'll see that, yes, it made it into the Yud Gimel Karm. Baruch Hashem, they made it into a song 83 times over. So everybody knows it. That song is from the Animamans. Those Animamans are from the Ramam's Pirish and Mishnayis. Tzipis the Yeshua is the chiyuv to want the Mashiach, wait for the Mashiach, expect the Mashiach, be that he's coming and he's not going to delay more than necessary. According to Azchusim, Tzipis the Yeshua, the fourth question in Shamayim. The Pella. We have to focus on that. You want to do well in this Bechina. I had a, I had a t-shirt when I was a, uh, a young kid. It said, uh, I, I couldn't find it recently. I wanted to get it from my sons. It's, the t-shirt said, did you study for your ohis? When I walked around, everybody would ask me, what are the ohis? I'd tell them, it's the Olam Haba entrance exams. <laughs> I didn't make the t-shirt. So, but you got like, to know these things to be able to answer these questions before you, uh, what is this all about? What's a, what's a piece of the Yeshua? So the smak, the Sefer Mitzvah's cotton, asks the Shaili, says, what's the source for a chiv, a bona fide chiv, it's a piece of Yeshua. Where, where does this come from? Believe it or not, he says the source for it's a piece of Yeshua, and this would explain why it's in the top four, is the first mitzvah, the first one of the Aseris Adibris. Anarchi Hashem Alakecha, Sheretesicha Meretzitzrayim. What does this have to do with the piece of the Yeshua? So the smak says, Just like we have to believe Hashem made the world, controls the world, controls nature, controls civilization, and took us out against all odds, so too, so too, you have to believe that Hashem maintains the power and will bring the Gula Sida as He did bring Gula's Mitzrayim in the proper time, with the full strength of all the Nisim and Uflos and the Smak Paskins. This is a chelik of Anechi Hashem Elokecha. Now we can begin to understand why this is in the top four. Shaila's why is it not number one, but at least it's in the top four. The Rambam spells this out quite clearly. Listen carefully to this Rambam of the parish of Mishnayis. Please tell this over to your family and to whoever else you meet. Not just this one. The Rambam is Meirich in the parish of Mishnayis, the beginning of Parachelik and Sanhedrin. And the reason he's Meirich is because you have to know not only Yud Gimli Karm, but you have to know every detail. If you're missing one detail, you're not precarious. Now the Ravid argues, and he says, if you're missing a detail, you're missing information, why does that make you an precarious? Rabbi Chaim gave his famous pshat that an Ebech is Echad Apikaris. The fact that you don't know doesn't mean you're not an Apikaris. It means that hopefully when you find out, you'll do tshuva and you'll accept it and you'll be a Maimon. Listen to what the Rambam says because there are three things in here that are unbelievable pell and I'd like to attempt to explain it. The Rambam says, Hayesoyed Shnei Masar, the twelfth of the thirteen Ikri Amuna. You have to believe that the Mashiach is coming. That he won't delay. It's a passing in Habakkuk. If he delays, you should wait. Now let's just pause for a moment. What does waiting mean? So waiting means you're really anticipating something. You're really thinking about it. You really want it to come. A dugma. We're in Brooklyn. I can use this example. This wouldn't fly in Muncie. Did you ever have the experience of waiting for an F train? F train still runs here? Okay. I've been gone 10 years. The F train. You're waiting for the F train, and you're late for work, and the F train is late. And you're really late, and it's really late. And you're waiting and waiting and waiting. So what do most people who have nothing to learn do? Anybody with a safer wouldn't have this problem. They say to Hillam, very good. Okay, that's the next step. And one of the people who don't have a safer, don't have to Hillam, they're not even Jewish. So what do they do? So what they do is, I don't want to lose the cord over here. I think I'm detached. They start uh, walking. Let me go off your screen. Uh, they start walking to the edge of the platform. I've been in this train. Mom is dangerous. For what purpose? To see the glimpse of the headlight as it's maybe having a havamina of soon coming out of the tunnel within the next 24 hours. 
And they're staying there putting themselves in Sarkana Mamish, like if somebody would blow, they would tip over Rahman Islam. And you think this is one crazy person. There are lines of people looking over each other's shoulders to see that headlight in the distance. I mean, you guys see this every morning. So you wonder, like, okay, Bitsotari, he's not Jewish. Obviously, these people have nothing to do. Did you ever once strain yourself to look and peer and have the train because of that come three minutes early? Hasn't happened once. I'm still chayshish, those buttons they put in these poles around here aren't real, and they're just to keep people busy. I don't know, but um, it's the same, it's the same midah. There's a light, and it turns, and uh, maybe they do something over here. It certainly doesn't do anything for the train. The godless of witnessing people doing that is now you can understand what the chi of Tzipis Yeshua is. Tzipis Yeshua is not just in theory believing that you know the Mashiach is going to come sooner or later. It's sitting at the edge of your seat, at the edge of the platform, waiting to see some glimpse of some faint, faint havamir that that might be the headlight of a train. We're looking for the headlights of the Malachim Mashiach. The Ramam says a chalik in this 12th Amunah is not just believing it will happen, but to be mopsin in a very serious way. I think so far we know because it's all part of the song. So this is not too much of a chiddush. The Ramam continues, Achelek, this is not a side detail. The Ramam will spell out, if you don't believe this, you will not be curious. Achelek of believing the Mashiach is to believe that the Melech Mashiach himself will be such a godol in leadership and as a person, I'll read to you his Lashon, not most. He's going to be greater than every melech that ever lived. That sounds like even greater than David Melech. This is a new thing. We have to believe. Why can't I believe he's a good, capable leader? He's a nice guy. He's a from guy. He learns. The Rambam of the Al Chazaka says he has to be holding and learning. He does not have to be the God of the learning. That's even a bigger kasha. Rambam says he has to be the greatest. The greatest at what? Which midah are we looking for? It's not learning because the Ramam says in the Yad, that's not a prerequisite. He has to be holding and learning. He has to be firm. He has to be kafaf to das tayr. What does it mean? He, you have to believe he has a yisron v'malo v'kavad al-kol ha-malachim shumayolam k'fim ha-shenivolav kolonavim imesh rabbeinu ha-malachi. So you'll say, okay, it's a detail. How do you know this in Iker? The Ramam says, umi shemestapik boy, a person must topic about this, or you think he's going to be less great than he really will be? I think he's going to be a great person, but not as great as the greatest Melech, greater than the greatest Melech. If you miss that point, Kafra Betaira. So we're going to have to really put on our thinking caps here. Why is this an Iker in the Yud Gimelani Mamin? I understand. Why do we have to believe that this individual is going to be the, uh, the greatest Godel in a certain Midah? We don't even know what that Midah is yet. That's question number one. It gets more complicated. Number two, You have to believe the chalik of this, Yud Gimelani Mamins, that the Melch Mashiach can only come, Yichus wise, from base David. Nobody else. Okay, we know, why David? Why David? Why is that so important? We know it'll be true, but why is that an Iker? Number three, even more surprising, it's not good enough to understand. He's going to come from David. He has to come from David. Umizera Shloimai Bilvad. Only from Shlomo Melch. Why Shlomo? A very great king. Gave us three unbelievable sfarim. Was it Tzadik Yisaitel? And if he had 400 children, does it have a different child? Why is that an acre? I believe the Pshad is as follows, and you'll understand why this is so important for our discussion. Go back a step. Why was David Amel chosen to be the first king in Klai Yisrael? Shaul was in the wrong shape, but it wasn't meant to last. Why was David chosen not only to be the first king, but to have the schus that he was promised to Shoshel HaSamalucha at Biyaz Gold Tzedek Vahad Why is that? What was David's godless? He had many areas of godless. What was his biggest godless? That for that, he was echad to this Malucha and this Zerah Mashiach. No. So we know from Tehillim. What is David's Calling card, so to speak. Bitachan and Amuna. David Amalek, from the day he was born, was Kemat put in the doghouse. He was born, they thought he was a mamzer, they wanted to do with him, they wanted to kill him, and Yishai said, Don't kill him, just put him, just separate him from the family, and he'll be the servant. 
He grew up like this. When Shmuel and Abi came to anoint the next king, they didn't even bother to call him. He wasn't even a Havamina. Finally, he got the Mashiach and he was appointed king. And right after that, Shaul was chasing him for two years, couldn't sleep the same place for two nights. Mamish tormented. And when he became king, it wasn't easy either. And then rebellions and Absalom and Adonio and everything in between. And plenty of enemies. You see this through Tehillim. And what shines forth from that Tehillim as he describes the problem? Everything is, Akash Baruch Hu, I know you're with me, you were with me, you are with me, you will be with me. I'm not giving up, I'm supposed to be king. And if you appointed me, obviously I can do it. Even when running away from Hashem, you look at the Basukim, he said, I don't know what Hashem wants, could be this an Einish for Basheva, which it was. But he understood, there might be an Einish, that means I have a, supposed to have Agmas Nefesh. I don't know if I'm supposed to come back, but if I'm supposed to come back, I'm ready to come back and fight for the Malucha, because I'm supposed to be doing this for Akash Baruch Hu. That is what Dovid Melch is all about. I believe that that's why it's important that the Melucha come through Shlomo. Dovid had many children. If we were to ask you, halachically, politically, hashkafically, who is the last, the very last son you can even have a Havamin of appointing to be the next king, my vote would be Shlomo Melch. The whole country was still reeling from the whole controversy with Bathsheba. Shlomo Melch was the result of the union between David and Bathsheba. So you appoint Shlomo, you're just bringing back all the naysayers and all the Lashon Hara and all the Machlekes. The whole tumult, once again, why would you pick Shlomo Melch? You say, well, David and Melch promised Bathsheba, but that's true. But Hashem ratified the promise. Hashem said he will be king. So I ask you, it's indeed a important kasha, why was Shlomo Melch picked? And he was 12 years old at that, by the way. That's why Adonio, if you were wondering until now, actually almost got his rebellion off the ground because nobody understood what was going on. The young man, 12 years old, he wasn't even brilliant yet. That's going to come later. I'm sure he was smart. 12 years old, 12-year-old can't run a country, but they're a chateva. And he's the reminder of the Maisa Basheva. So why was he picked? Anybody ever think of this? It's a pella. I think the answer is, is that he was Dafka picked besides his own Milas, which he had plenty of. He was picked to teach us this same lesson, and that is, if you make a mistake in life, you pick yourself up, you do tshuva, it's a kapara coming, perhaps an oinish, maybe yeah, maybe not, in some form. You go weiter, you continue, you stay focused, and you don't get sidetracked. And David Amal's godless is, even after the Maes of Hashem, he didn't get sidetracked, and he understood that you can make a mistake, and you can even have an Avera, you can have a perceived Avera, perceived Chil Hashem, and you can still go on to accomplish incredible things in your life. And the result of this thing, he had the right thing in mind, and he meant L'Shem Shemayim, and it was based on Ruch HaKadosh. Shlomo Melch was still the proper result, even though the way he got there wasn't. And this, I believe, is why we have to believe the Melch HaMashiach is going to be the Godol. In which category? This category, B'Tachan and Amuna. If you haven't noticed, the world is completely out of control, never been worse. Every day another country tries to get a bomb. There are complete regions that are completely, uh, completely lawless. And the Malachim Mashiach is going to walk in and he's going to have quite a job on his hands. He's going to have to be a person who's not sidetracked by people who have tainas on him, of people who are out to get him, people who are out to kill him, and people who don't agree with his policy. And that's why we have to believe, because we have to follow him. We have to believe that he's the greatest Godel capable of the job, and he will be, because otherwise the job's not going to get done. And to bring it downtown to earth for all the uh, humans in this room, myself included, we're not Dabra Melech and Shlomo and the Melech and Mashiach, even Sitkiyoa Melech, Rachel Imenu. We often don't follow through on what we know deep down is right. Because at the end of the day, we're afraid, what are they going to say? Either they're going to call me too from, they're going to call me out of touch, they're going to try to take Nakama, they're going to have tainas on me, I'm going to lose my friends. And yet, we know that Hashem promises us that if you do the right thing, you get mole schar, and there's a chiv of a chet and there's a chiv to be mekashem shemayim, there's a chiv to inspire people. And if you back down because you're nervous and you're fearful, the job won't get done. And that's why out of all the Midas, it doesn't have to be the Godel and every Tesis. 
He has to be the God of in this midah of getting things done. Not only a leadership for God's Klai Yisrael, but we're all leaders for our families, for our children, for our friends, for the guy sitting next to us in shul, for the guy looking at you daven, how you daven, how you don't daven, how you learn what you do when the train's coming and delayed, what you do with your time. And everybody says, they're not looking at me, they are looking at you. They're looking at you for support on what they're not doing. We're out of time, so I'm going to close with one item and save the rest next year for Yushalayim Yerakadish. Maybe we'll have a program in Binyanei Oma. I think they're going to rename the building possibly, but we'll be there. That's a shame. Two short thoughts. One is to understand our job. Our job here, our job on Tishabov is to cry. Cry not only because of the pogroms and the holocaust and the terrorists and all the deaths and all the gullus. It's enough to cry about. But the real panemius, we're really supposed to be crying on gullus hashchina and the chil Hashem, and the fact that his children are being butchered in our Arba Kanfas Aretz, supposed to be worried, a little bit transcending ourselves and our problems. Supposed to be worried about the Golas Hashchina. And to fix the tremendous chil Hashem that's going on, to completely fix it, we'll take a Gula Shlema. But in the meantime, keep the following two things in mind. Number one, a very fascinating, moving Gemar and Chagiga and Yud Gimel and Medbez. Gemara says that before the Chorban, Malachim had six wings. Six wings. After the Chorban, two were clipped, and they only have four now. So, ain't lano asik benestaris, but let me just share with you what the Gain says on this Gemara. The Gain says before the Chorban, they had six wings. Each wing had a word. Baruch Shame Kavid Ve'ed. At the time of the Chorban, where the might and the covet of Hashem was no longer apparent, two wings were clipped, and you could figure out which two. Kavid Malchusait, Peladigagain. Baruch Shame was still, Hashem is still blessed. The Yalom Vod will always be. The only thing that we can't see clearly is Kavid Malchusait. That means our job is to, in whatever small way we can, bring back that covet. And the second thing, and it's important to leave you with this, sometimes we try, and hopefully after today's Russia, we'll think about ways to maximize the Kiddush Shemayim, how to help people grow in the Ruchniyot without giving them hard musr, but telling them, you know, I used to have a problem with this also. I also used to almost fall off the platform and look for the train until I realized I could learn for another 20 minutes. And by the way, this is a good marshal for Tepisa, the Yeshua, what's that? That's one of the Yudgimali Karin. And if I tell you about it in the next two minutes, you won't be an curious anymore. There are all sorts of things you could do. And people are still fearful. What if I fail? What if he screams at me? What if he tells me, get away from me, you strange person? What if it doesn't work? So again, I turn to David HaMelech. And I hold this hafladik. I think I even mentioned this eight years ago here, for anybody who remembers. Did you ever wonder why Pazuka Zimra starts off, Nusik Ashkenaz, Mabish starts off, Nusik Farad sort of starts off, with Ms. Mashiach Hanukkah Sabayis Ladavid. There's positioning for every part of tefillah. Why is this the lead-off message? What theme does Ms. Moshir have for the rest of Bezukah Zimra and for the rest of tefillah? Question number two, which you should have asked, perhaps you did, when you read this capital slowly. Ms. Moshir, Hanukkah, Sabayis, Ladavid. That's the lead-off line. The titles give you what the rest of the capital is about. So this capital, no doubt, is about the Beis HaMikdush. Yeah, what's the rest of the capital about? No shaykhus seemingly whatsoever talks about trials and tribulations of David HaMelech and the praise, You didn't let my enemies destroy me and rejoice. I dive into you and you healed me. You helped me from falling into the pit. And it's a beautiful, beautiful capital all about how David was saved and how he's thanking HaKadosh Baruch that he was saved from all his terrible enemies and his trials and tribulations. 
and ends off, I was saved, and I know why I was saved, in order to be able to sing the shvach, what does this have to do with the Beis HaMikdash? The answer is, David Amel spent his whole life preparing for one job, building the Beis HaMikdash and being the Melech HaMashiach. Why does Melech HaMashiach have to be a great-great-great-great-great-grandson of David? It could be David. He knew that. So he prepared, he won all the battles, and he got Klai Son, HSL in order, and it's Gavaldik, the golden age of Yiddishkeit. And then when finally all the wars are over, Hashem, he calls the Navi, he says, I'd like to build the Mesamitish and I have everything saved up. I spend years, every penny, from all the battles. I have a large supply of treasury. It's all paid for. We're ready to go. And the Navi says, Gavaldik. And he goes back to his house. And Hashem appears to the Navi. He says, quickly go back to Dovod Melch and tell him, no, lie with an Aleph. You can't do it. Why? You're too big a tzaddik. We need an ish shalom, an ish mechama. have a different uh, thing to do in life. Whatever the explanation is. He came back and told Delmel quickly because Hashem said he's a zariz. He's going to have it built by tomorrow. You better quickly run back. So he goes and he tells Delmel, your highness, I don't know how to say this, but Hashem said no. Can you imagine spending your whole life on a project? A good project, a mitzvah, something Delmel is supposed to do. And in one second, it's all over. Most people would crumble, throw in the towel, and call it quits. David Amalek, as we have shown, never calls it quits. It's almost like it's not the same person. He switched gears, whether it took a minute, an hour, overnight. But the next morning, he was a chacharist in the best measure again. If it's not Hashem's wrath, then I build it. I tried. I tried to do the mitzvah. I thought I was the one to do it. Obviously, I was wrong. You go right there, and you look for the next mitzvah. If you have a person you're talking to, trying to be mashpion, trying to set an example for, and they get very annoyed or they don't want to hear it, there are Baruch Hashem, millions of Yidin who need our help. Find 10, 20, 30, 40 who need it. If we all take that on, and Mitzvah Hashem will see the Gula Shleim of Herbi Amen.